and we're live. We're live. Hi, girls. Hello. Hi. Welcome, welcome. Uh, welcome to another uh, interesting episode of Strong Tea. Uh, if you haven't joined us before, why not? Uh, we've done lots and lots of interesting chat um, and you can get the full back catalogue of all our chats on Spotify, Amazon Audible and also Apple. Um, but for those of you that don't know and haven't joined us before, Strong Tea is a podcast which basically talks about the topics that people don't really want to talk about. Some of them are a bit taboo, some of them are difficult to talk about and some of them are just things that we're trying to educate ourselves on and you know, help other people understand a little bit more about, which brings us to today's episode, where we'll be talking about diabetes. So I'm going to hand over to Vicky. I'm Katie. I'm Vicky. There you go. And she's going to tell us a little bit more about our wonderful guest today and also to chat about tea. <laughs> Lots of tea. Tea. Lots of tea. Yeah, we are really lucky to have Suzanne joining us today. Um absolute wonderful human being and winner of UK's most inspiring individual of the year so I think we should have like a fanfare kind of sound effect there Um, (laughs) nicely done love it Um, but yeah we are so fortunate to have Suzanne here today talking about um, living with diabetes and I'm the first to admit that I don't actually know very much at all about diabetes its effects um, so I'm really looking forward to this episode. Um, so yeah, uh, without further ado, though, what are we drinking? Well, Katie. You, uh, well I was going to say, I would let the guests go first. Oh, oh, okay. Suzanne, what are you drinking? So I actually am drinking coffee, but it's not real coffee. It's caffeine-free coffee alternative made with barley and chicory from Holland and Barrett. And I've got milk with it and it's very nice. Gosh, who knew? Is a coffee alternative? It's lovely. I think it's the most coffee-tasting coffee that I've come across, and it's just really nice. God, that's blown our drinks out of the water, isn't it? <laughs> Mine's looking really dull right about now. <laughs> um, today I've gone for a pucker tea. I've gone for a pucker piece tea, which has got spearmint and hemp, and it's also got that herb in that's like ash, ash wag. That That one, that one, yeah, yeah, yeah. That one, which I can't say, but it's got that in. It's supposed to be very calming. Nice, Mm. nice. What what about you? I'm the boring of the gang today, then, because I've gone with Yorkshire tea uh, jam and toast flavour because it's just so lovely. It's just so lovely. Is it nice? I saw that in the shop. Um, Okay, I'm gonna have to get some. They also do a multi biscuit. Yes, I've seen that Mm. one. Get the whole set, Suzanne. Just just buy the set. <laughs> but drinking it in the afternoon, that's controversial. The whole mm. jam and toast. Long day. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Still feels like the morning. <laughs> right. Okay. So without further ado, miss my cue there because I'm so busy dreaming about <laughs> tea. <laughs> so uh, Suzanne, please tell us your story about how you came to have diabetes and how you came to manage it. But please feel free. You're not teaching us to suck eggs. We know nothing. Okay. We want to educate ourselves. Thank you. So before I became diabetic, I had no idea what diabetes was and I'd never heard of it at all. Um, I was 15 and I just finished uh, school, the summer holidays. And then gradually over six weeks, I was feeling more and more ill. But because it was so gradual, I didn't really notice it. Um, 
and I was feeling thirsty and I was going to the toilet a lot and I was getting a bit tired but I sort of you know I thought I was just you know finishing school and and the holidays and then I think when I really sort of started to feel something wasn't right I remember going on holiday to my auntie's um in Ireland and they've got a sweet shop and um literally every sweet you can imagine it's one of those old-fashioned sweet shops and I was just eating sweets and drinking coke and lemonade all day long because my body was craving sugar even though it had a lot of sugar obviously I didn't know this at the time and I just thought I'm on holiday I can have loads of sugar but when I was starting to wee four or five six times in the night and I never do that I knew that something wasn't right and then I came back from that holiday and then I couldn't even walk up the stairs without feeling exhausted at the top so I mentioned this to my mom and I had blurred vision as well and I mentioned this to my mom and she had obviously heard of it and she probably in her head thought it was diabetes but didn't want to tell me so I went to the doctors on my own uh, and I was 15 and I went through everything and they were like we have some blood tests and uh they didn't really say much they said we think you know I think you need to get some blood tests so I went and then four days later they rang me at home uh which I don't think they probably do nowadays um and they gave me the results and my blood sugar was 29 and it should be between four and seven so 29 is very high. I mean, Whoa. 30s, 40s, you know, you can have serious complications. So I was still able to walk and, you know, some people are rushed into hospital with diabetes. I was lucky I was still, you know, functioning, but my vision was blurred and I was tired a lot. So the next day I had to go into the hospital and meet a consultant. And I met this consultant and I had about 20, it felt like uh, trainees sitting there as well. And, you know, I didn't know what was going on. And I just remember him like talking me through it. And he said, you'll have to come into hospital next week and uh, spend some time in hospital. And at that point, I'd never been in hospital. I wasn't even born in hospital. So I'd only been in once with a broken arm. Um, so, yeah, it all felt a bit scary to actually be in hospital. Uh, and I remember him saying to me, like, what do you want to do when you're older? And I said, I want to be a teacher. He said, well, you can still be a teacher with diabetes. And I was like, OK what is this diabetes? You know, why would I not be able to be a teacher? Um, and then he said, for the rest of the weekend, just do what you would normally do, but don't eat anything sugary. And so we went to Chesterton World of Adventures with my family and I had to eat nothing sugary and they all were eating loads of sugar. So I was a bit like, why can't I have that biscuit? So I literally just, you know, had a packed lunch without all the nice bits in it. Uh, and then on the Monday, I went to hospital and when I first went to hospital, I remember on the Friday, my mum, he asked my mum and said, which ward would she like to be in? They could have just asked me, I was 15, but, and she said, oh, the adult ward. And I wanted to be in the children's ward because I thought it'd be nice to be in the children's ward and I can look after all the kids, and, you know, be a bit more fun. And anyway, so I was in the adult ward and oh my God, it was a horrible ward. It was a ward where they put people they don't really know what to do with and a real mismatch of people, you know, with one leg and all sorts of things. And as a 15 year old, it was a bit freaky. And anyway, luckily I had my own room. So um, with the TV, so I actually, you know, did luck out in the end. Um, and I remember sitting on the bed and there was all these leaflets on the bed. And I was just like, and I started flicking through them. And mum was there. It was about four hours before we saw a doctor. And I was just flicking through them and I was just like, what the hell? And I just burst into tears because every single page was complicated to read. And it was this will affect it and that will affect it and the weather will affect it and stress levels and you've got to keep your levels at this and you've got to take insulin and injections and it was literally mind-blowing your feet you're going to get your feet amputated if you don't look after them you're going to have kidney dialysis and you're like you're going to go blind that was my worst one you're going to go blind and it was really scary stuff and um and then I ended up being in hospital for a week uh, and during that time, they basically, um, they don't do any of this now uh, at all, but they basically, you know, I had to see diabetic nurses and doctors and they did loads of tests and they had to talk me through everything and, and understand it. 
and um the first time they gave me insulin they in those days it was just a syringe and a bottle so you'd have to draw up your insulin so it was really like you felt like you were ill it was really sort of old school and I remember they did it the first time and they just said inject that in your stomach and I was like no no normally as a child you practice on an orange but because I was in the adult ward they were like no just stick that in your stomach and I was like okay and I stuck it in my stomach and very quickly I started to feel better so very quickly my vision started going as soon as I was getting the insulin um, but they had to wake me up during the night to test my blood. I had to test it every few hours, you know, and, and it was a lot of work involved. And I just remembered, like, I'm never going to, I'm never going to understand all this. And one of the best things they did, and this is why it's really sad they don't do any of this now, is um, when you're diabetic, your blood sugars can go high, which is called hyperglycemia, or they go low, which is called hypoglycemia. Don't know why they're such similar words, but hypo or hyper. And to go hypo, it happens very quickly so hyper is normally like i was for six weeks i was getting worse and worse and worse and worse but i was okay whereas hypo could go really quickly and one of the things they did was they put me into a hypo situation in hospital so one morning they gave me my insulin and they said you're not allowed to have your breakfast and because i didn't have any food i should have gone quite low quite quickly and for some reason it didn't work and I remember the nurse going, okay, you're not going much lower. So then they injected me with some short acting because I've, I've got a mixed insulin, which is long acting and short acting. So they injected me with some short acting, still nothing. I mean, by this point, they were giving me a hell of a lot of insulin and I wasn't going massively low. And then they're like, can you walk up and down the corridor? So I was walking up and down the corridor. And then I was with my dad at the time. And then eventually it went. And my dad just said, you look like a ghost. And I just went white and I was shaking and it was a horrible experience, but I think, thank God I had that in hospital. So I understood it. And I said it to them, I said, yeah, this is what it will feel like. So when you're outside in the outside world. So obviously they gave me my, my food then. So it, it was great. Whereas nowadays, if you be diabetic, you literally see a nurse, maybe on the telephone, maybe on video call, you might go to a clinic and they'll just explain everything. And then you go home and you've pretty much got to fend for yourself. And for something that's a lifelong condition, I just don't think that's right. I think you really need to understand it from, from, you know, from the word go. And I just worry now that lots of people don't really understand it because they haven't got that treatment. Whereas being in hospital, I know obviously you can't always be in hospital, but, you know, to have that support and to be able to really talk through was great. And at that time, I didn't know any other diabetics. So it was it was all a bit weird but also quite exciting because I was like, I've got something that nobody else I know has got. And I had to talk to give a school assembly and I was allowed to eat in class because I had to eat set times. And I, I was also being really strict to weighing out my food. Which I don't do now, but you know, and so I had to eat at certain times. I was allowed to do my fingerprint tests in class and people were fascinated by it. So it all, I suppose I never, I never really thought I'm going to have this for life. And actually what's this going to impact on me? I just got on with it because I was quite a sensible child and because it felt like exciting a little bit as well as scary I just sort of got on with it and um and then one of my um my deputy headmistress her husband was diabetic and he used to run um, a diabetic camp was involved in a diabetic camp for young people and luckily I was diagnosed in September and the diabetic camp was the next August and she said look you'll be 16 then you can come along as a helper and all the kids are diabetic that come there's about 50 and then there's 50 staff it's one-on-one -on -one, um 
sort of ratio and half the staff are diabetic as well. So I went along and that was probably one of the best things I could have done because I suddenly was with people like myself and people that had really bad control, you know, their blood sugars were in their forties, people that were convulsing on the floor because they were having a serious hypo. And I got to see a lot of that, but I also got to learn, understand and share my experience with them. And that was just the best thing. I ended up going for six years and then they closed it down, unfortunately. But um, yeah, it, it was just a brilliant experience. And I think that really helped me because in those days there wasn't like Facebook and groups and, you know, there wasn't that support network as much as there is now. Um, and I just think that being around people that understand it was one of the best things that really I found because while my family and friends tried to support me, like, they just can't understand it. No one can understand it unless you've got it. And I would probably say it's one of the hardest conditions to live with because if you've got asthma, you take an inhaler. Most of the time, that's enough. If you've got a heart problem, you might take a daily tablet and that, that, is, that will prevent it or you know, maintain the conditioning. But with diabetes, everything has a factor. You walk too far, you don't walk far enough one day because your body likes patterns. And so with you, who is a diabetic, every time you eat, your body will produce insulin enough for what you've eaten. So if you eat 500 bars of chocolate, it will produce enough insulin for that. If you eat one bar of chocolate, it will produce enough insulin for that. For me, it doesn't. So I have to guess all the time what I'm eating and how many carbs it is I'm eating. As you can imagine, when you go to a restaurant, that's impossible to know that exact bit of food, how much is in that lasagna or how much is in, in that. And, and oh, what was I saying now? Um, no, I've lost my train of thought. Uh, so yeah, so I was going back. So basically, it's that's it. Every day is is different. So stress can cause problems, illness, um, the weather. If it's too hot, you absorb insulin quicker because you open up your pores. So obviously, you're using it up quicker. You're not allowed to have hot baths. You shouldn't have anything like heat near your feet. You're not allowed to walk around with bare feet. So there's loads and loads of things that you just impacts on it every single day and every single day you wake up and it's going to be a different day my blood sugar level could have been six this morning it could be 12 tomorrow morning you know and that's the trouble it is so hard to predict and it's I don't know anyone any diabetic and I'm in a lot of groups that has a perfect 100% in the range of four to seven every single day is pretty much impossible because we're on a synthetic insulin that you have to inject at certain times and obviously your bodies will inject it when it needs it. And if I inject it one day at eight, the next day I inject it at nine in the morning, that's already an hour out. So your body's like, oh, I was expecting that at eight o'clock in the morning and now it's nine o'clock, so I'm gonna to start to go up. So an insulin obviously lowers your blood sugar levels. So the higher you go, the more insulin obviously you need. So it's such a complicated condition. And even now, 30 years on, I am learning stuff every day, things that I just didn't know or understand. So, yeah. So you talk about, obviously you you witness people convulsing and you know that there's obviously a, a scale of severity and you know there are different types could you talk us through the types of diabetes and what that means yeah so it's it's a bit of a myth about the severity thing all diabetic all diabetes is severe so there's type one and type two so type one is what i have and it used to be called juvenile onset because it was people that were young that got it. So at 15, I was classed as quite old to have to get diabetes. You would normally get it from birth or from a young age. And my body doesn't produce any insulin. They think for some people that when you first become diabetic, your body is producing some. It's called a honeymoon period. 
And I think I might have had a honeymoon period for quite a while where my body might have been producing some because my control was very good for a while. Um, and then you've got type two, which is mature onset. And that is the one that people tend to get later on in life. Now, they're both severe as each other, but to just put some context in it, only 8% of the UK, um, sorry, type one affects 8% of everyone with diabetes, while type two is 90%. So there aren't actually that many type one diabetics around, but there's a hell of a lot of type two. And type one is genetic. So they said to me, you would have got it, it's in your body and you would have got it at some point in your life. They still don't 100% know why people get it when they get it. But the only thing they can think of is that before I got it, I had a cold. Uh, and they think that that cold was like some sort of viral that basically brought on diabetes. So that's why they think I got it at that time. Now, I may not have got it until five years later or 10 years later or even 40 years later. I know more and more type ones now that are being diagnosed with type one later on in life. Whereas type two, you can normally control it with tablets or with diet or a mixture of both. And occasionally you might need to go on insulin. But both of them are severe as each other. They can both cause complications. And I think that the biggest thing is that type two diabetics is preventable. So type 1 diabetes, which I have, is not preventable, it's genetic. And until they can find the gene and stop it, it is not preventable. As type 2 is, because type 2 is about the lifestyle that we lead. It's about eating too much sugar, uh, not doing enough exercise, smoking too much, drinking too much. All those things that we know that we shouldn't do, but we all do it. And unfortunately, that is why there's a lot more people around now with type 2 diabetes. And some of them are getting it much younger as well. Um, so they can both cause serious complications and there's a whole range of complications you can get. But the most the ones that are probably the ones I remember learning the most vividly were going blind because it basically if your blood sugar is high a lot of the time, it kills your um, veins or not your veins, your blood cells in your eyes. So every year I have to go and have a photograph taken of the back of my eyes at the hospital. I'm going actually this Friday and they put stuff in your eyes and make you go blurred for a while. It's horrible. And then they have to take a picture of the back of your eyes and they're checking that there's no um, concern there with blood sugar level. And luckily, touch wood, so far, they can't see anything in my eye at all. They said, you, you don't even look diabetic from your eyes. So that's great. So I need that to continue. Kidney failure is the other big thing. So some people on kidney dialysis have problems with their kidneys and feet amputation. Amputations are quite a big thing. They were, they were a lot more for people of an older generation because they didn't have the control that we have now and they didn't have all the checkups and all the good technology. So a lot of people would have had amputations on their feet and legs. So if you often see older people with amputations, it could be because they've been, they're diabetic. And the thing with type one is, I feel like you, you would probably feel it very quickly that you're not well and go and see a doctor. With type two, it could go on for years. So often, you know, older people, they might get ulcers ulcers are a big sign of type 2 diabetes you know and you might feel tired but then you're not exercising if you're sitting around at home you know we're talking sort of 70 80 90 year olds so of course you don't necessarily you just think you're getting old and you've got health problems but actually that could be complications from having diabetes for a long time so they are both as serious as each other but I think there's probably I don't know if there's any more understanding over one or the other, but I think people are starting to become more aware of type two diabetes because there's more people with it. And because the government, when they're trying to, to put messages across, will often be put messages across about type two because they want to prevent that because it is preventable. And sometimes you can reverse type two. So if you do go and they say you could be pre-diabetic and then you become diabetic, but you could stop yourself from getting diabetes. Whereas type one, 
you can't it will just come sometime in your life so so yeah so they are they are um both a series of each other but um, both controlled very differently it sounds like for such a I mean I know you've said about they're both very both very serious but for such a severe condition you sound like you're you take it very much in your stride do you feel like it sort of stops you living your life like you talk about going out for meals and how it's quite difficult to gauge what you're eating and you know I'm imagining with alcohol and stuff as well you've got to be careful like do you feel like you've got restrictions on your life and you feel like that hampers you yes so when I was first diagnosed I think I just got on with it and coped with it and didn't really understand it and didn't really think I'm going to have this forever you know it's a lifelong condition but you know but then also there was that like reading stuff that made me feel like I'm going to die very young and um I'm going to get these complications because everyone gets them I mean it's very rare that you won't get some form of complication and you're probably going to die younger than the majority of the population so there was a bit of me that was like just going to get on with it and a bit of me that was like oh my god in the future it's going to be horrific and I feel like for a long time, I was very good. And I was very, I weighed out my food. I ate at certain times every single day. When I went to diabetic camp and I was chatting to doctors and nurses and stuff, they were like, you do not need to do that. Like you've got to live your life. You can't let diabetes control you. You have to be in control of it. Mm-hmm. So it, it was really hard because I just remember thinking I've got to do all these things correctly, but I knew that it was going to be quite a restriction on my life. And then I went to university at 18 and I probably, not that I didn't care about my diabetes, but I probably, well, I definitely drank a bit too much and, you know, didn't really, didn't really factor my diabetes into my lifestyle because obviously as a student, I was doing stuff at all different times of nights and clubbing and drinking and, um, and luckily nothing you know, serious happened, but I probably had a slight rebellion a bit later because I was just like, I just can't be bothered really. You know, I just want to ha- enjoy my life. Um, but since then, I've, I've probably been fairly, I don't let it control me to a point, but um, sometimes it naturally does. And I think it has, so when I do things now, like so if I'm going for a walk, like a, you know, sometimes I do like eight mile walks, I will take enough food in my rucksack for a week because the last thing I want is to be stranded somewhere with no food in the middle of a mountain or something. And there are times like that when it can be really scary or, you know, if you go on holiday, I have to take three sets of insulin pens because if one breaks and I'm abroad, you know, it's not easy to go and get something or blood testing machines. And so you have to think a lot more every single day of what you're doing and where you're going and what you've got on you. So it does restrict your life. I mean, I'm in a lot of diabetic Facebook groups and there's a real mixture of people, you know, some they're like, yeah, it doesn't let it, you know, I literally will jump out of a plane and I'll do anything. And some people are lucky that their control is so good that they can do that and they don't let it worry them. And other people are petrified of like the smallest thing. And I think I'm probably a little bit in between because it is so scary every day. And particularly like I'm going to a wedding. I have no idea what time I'm eating the food. And that's going to play an impact on do I eat before I go? How much food do I have on me? You know, I can't just pop out to the shop and get something. What if I go low? So all the time you're thinking about stuff and that that can be quite limiting. I mean, it just sounds like you've got to be so prepared, as you're saying. And the impact on people who potentially have you know, poor memories or, you know, new mums or, you know, anyone with any cognitive 
I don't know, just, just the inability to, to look after yourself as well. The, yeah. the results can be absolutely catastrophic. And yeah. from what you're saying, I mean, as I said at the beginning, I am the first to admit I knew nothing about diabetes. Do you think there's enough knowledge out there about this? No, I, I think um, every now and again, it's, I think in 2019, it's the ninth biggest killer in the world. So it's up there, like, you know, across the world. And it's more westernized countries that are higher levels of um, diabetes, definitely. Um, so I think it's, I think the government every now and again might do something, but generally I would say a lot of people I meet don't know anyone that's diabetic or don't really understand it. And often you get comments like, oh, why are you having that sugar? And it's like, well, I'm allowed, you know, I am allowed to have sugar because that's the other thing when I was diagnosed, it's like, you know, you're told all this stuff that, or you think all these things. And one of them I remember was like, oh, I'm never gonna be able to eat sugar again, but you can, everything a bit in moderation. And, you know, you might have it more at the end of a meal and make sure you inject and all those sorts of things. But I think, I don't think people quite realise the severity of, like, when you do see type 2 adverts, it's, I don't think it's harsh enough to say, like, you carry on living your lifestyle, you'll probably get type 2 diabetes, no question about it. You know, more and more people I know are getting type 2 diabetes, just because their, our lifestyle is very different to what it was years ago. And I just don't think, and, and that because it's preventable, like, and a lot of the NHS resources are spent on type 2 diabetes. And I just think... There's a lot that needs to be said and done. And it's, you can do it at school, but I think at school, you're not really focusing on later on in life that much. So it needs to, it needs to be attracting more of sort of 30, 40 year olds plus to sort of go like, calm down your drinking or your eating and make sure you're cutting down your sugar and those sorts of things. Because obviously all of that and make sure you do more exercise will eventually probably contribute to type two diabetes. I, when I um, was diagnosed with polycystic ovaries, um, they said to me that um, there were issues caused by PCOS, which is like an insulin blocker. And I was thinking, hold on, wait, isn't that to do? And they were like, yeah, it's like type two diabetes. And I had to sort of go on a bit of a journey of trying to understand yeah. like what type two diabetes is. And, and as a result, it's it can cause you to be more overweight you'll be four, four times more likely to be overweight than the rest of the pop, female population. Yeah. And so as a result, it's always kind of, I'm continually watching what I'm eating, yeah. what I'm putting in my body. And as a result of that, it's become second nature to me to try and be more healthy because, and like you say, when you're in uni and when you're in school, you're not thinking about your ongoing health and mm. the things that you put in your body, you're just like, yeah, I'm having a great time. And I probably didn't do anything really sensible until I was in my late twenties, early thirties. And you do look around now and you think it's still, even though they, like you say, they're putting a lot of funding into, you know, you know, you need to keep an eye on this and eat your five a day and all of that jazz. But really there's not enough. I don't think there's enough focus on the impact and the seriousness of it is mm. there. No, it, it doesn't feel like there's enough, like no. you could die. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, <laughs> drastic, but it can happen. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I think, I think the trouble is that 
And it's better to do that. It's better to spend that money up front and do as much as possible because all that's going to happen is if those people get too ill, they'll end up through the NHS and be could be potentially ill for years and, you know, needing nurses to dress their ulcers and nurses to give, you know, insulin injections and that sort of stuff that people can't, you know, see or if they can't, you know, pick up needles anymore. So actually it all... All of it basically needs to be done at a much younger age and more understanding of it and more, um, yeah, I suppose just more knowledge really around it, more understanding of it. But I think it's one of the things that people often go, you look at everything like cancers and stuff like that, people just go, oh yeah, you know, when I'm old, maybe. And you don't really think about it until you get it or until you might be old and then it's a bit too late. And I don't know how you get, it's behavioural, isn't it? I don't know how you get people to really understand that earlier on. Yeah, yeah. And it's I suppose it is all down to the, the marketing isn't it and pushing that yeah. you mentioned about the treatment that you got earlier on when you were first diagnosed and the time that you spent in hospital and all of the tests that they did and you said now that really doesn't happen do you think that is because of the limited resources that the NHS have or do you think that there is more uh, knowledge and resource behind the condition itself so that they feel that there's less need for all that time to be spent on testing they can quite easy they can diagnose it easier and they can mm. teach people about it easier I would probably say it's because of funding if I'm honest because so many people are literally in this group and they say I was diagnosed last week with diabetes and I don't understand what this means and they haven't given me this and I'm still waiting for that and and it's, you know, it's it's horrible. If you're living on your own and you go home that first night and you've got to sleep through and like, I remember thinking like, am I going to wake up? You know, I, you just don't really understand it all for a while. And I just think that having, I loved having that security and safety net of just support, doctors, nurses, you can talk through things if anything goes wrong. And, you know, there's people in the group that are so, you know, they're in hospital all the time. Because the other thing, if you go too high, you can end up having um, diabetic ketoacidosis, which is like going to a coma. And if your ketones get too high, and that's the other thing you have to manage, if your blood sugar goes over a certain level, you have to manage your ketones or if you're ill. And obviously, then you'll end up, if your ketones get to a certain level, you have to go to hospital. Like there's nothing else. You've got to go to hospital and they have to put drips in you and stuff. Touch wood, I've never had that. But it, again, it's like, and they're in and out of hospital, you know, and going low and ambulances being called. And it's really scary because some of them just don't have the support networks of, you know, good diabetic nurses or, and also that unfortunately the healthcare professions don't always understand diabetes themselves. So obviously I will see a diabetic nurse. I see a consultant, a diabetic nurse, I would say are brilliant on the whole because they're not diabetic, but they get it. They work with it day in, day out. That's their specialism. Consultants generally don't. You know, and so if there's any consultant assisting, but often they don't because they haven't got that expertise in it. But you have to go and see them, you know, ideally once a year. But if you were suddenly rushed into hospital, the nurses that are just working with you don't always understand it and know what they should do and what they should give you and those sorts of things. So because it you need to have that knowledge, and I don't even think that all the healthcare professionals have all that knowledge about what diabetes really means and what people need. Um, and I think also um just generally, I think people need more, you know sort of understanding of what it is all about definitely so you mentioned earlier about um you know when you're in hospital and you had to stab yourself and yeah. I mean th that just makes me shudder because there is no way that I could do I could do that um but what's your treatment looking these what was the evolution of your treatment and where are you at now so um I used to so I'm on a thing called mixed insulin, so which gives you short acting and long acting. So long acting 
lasted about 24 hours generally um and your bodies are producing that like a it's called basal bolus they're producing like a level all the time and then when you eat your pancreas is chucking out some more insulin just to cover what you've eaten and when i was diagnosed that those those regimes weren't even around so everyone was on mixed insulin so i had my short acting and my long acting in one injection which as you can imagine is quite tricky because you're giving something for now but you've got to keep something in there for later on so most people have stopped have stopped using two a day injections and they've gone on to the more which mimics somebody that's not diabetic so it's much more you give one injection a day or maybe two that is your background insulin for 24 hours and then every time you eat so if you want to eat 20 times a day you give 20 lots of injections if you only want to eat once a day you inject but that it's got to be carb based. Obviously, if you just had salad with no carbs, you wouldn't need to do any injection. I'm still on the old regime. For 30 years, I've been on two injections a day and I'm very rare on that, partly because it hasn't been broken. And my long term, every four months, you have to have a, a blood test, which basically gives you your long term HbA1c, which is your blood count. And mine's always been pretty good. So a bit of me has been too scared, if I'm honest, to change. Um, but I've got to the point now where I feel like I have to change. And there's a few reasons for that. One is that my insulin over the years keeps being discontinued and then I have to go on a new one because so many, so few people are on it now. I'm worried that one day it will discontinue anyway. People don't have as much understanding as these two injections a day as they do now with, you know, the, the new regimes. And so when I was diagnosed, I had that and I, I had insulin like syringes and um, a vial. I remember once injecting outside and someone thought I was a druggie and started like having a go at me, you know, and it, it did, it made you feel like, oh my God, it was horrible. Um, and then over time, like these insulin pens, my insulin pen, and basically they don't look like a scary needle and, you know, there's a little needle on the end and it's much nicer. You can carry it around in a nice little wallet and, you, and that's what I use to inject every day. So... And now, I mean, there's so many different other options of insulins, or you can have an insulin pump, which is attached to you all the time and releases insulin all the time. Um, and then with blood testing, with um, the finger pricking, so to test my blood every day, I used to have to prick my finger. Um, and now only in the last few weeks, I've now got a device that's stuck on my arm that I have to put on my arm every two weeks, which gives me a continual blood glucose monitoring. So whereas before, I would only see what my blood was doing when I pricked my finger. So during the night, I couldn't prick my finger because I was asleep. Whereas this tells me 24 hours what my blood's doing. So I can see when I'm going high, when I'm going low. And before that, I would never have known. So the technology has definitely improved. And there's a lot more things going on now that people, it does make it definitely easier to live with diabetes. And all the time, they're going to be creating new technologies and better things for people. Do you feel that that... Um... 24-hour tracker that sort of consistent allowing of you to see where you are with your blood sugars do you think that makes it easier to manage because you said before about everyone being very different and you can get it one day and it's six and the next day it's 12 is it just luck of the draw or are you able to sort of figure out a pattern to say no actually I, I've noticed that that's happening there so maybe I need to do this is it does it work that scientifically yeah and, and that's the way it should be so when you're on the basal bolus regime where you give the long and then the short that should be much better to control because you but but you have to know exactly what you're eating and that's impossible really you know every time you have something you will go how much carbs is in there you know, and on a roast dinner, like some veggies, carbs, some veggies and carbs, you know, how much is those three potatoes and the Yorkshire pudding? And you've got to just guess that. 
because there's no there's no mechanism to know that I mean, you can go on websites and they can show you like pictures of what four roast potatoes might be in carbs and stuff but so you have to work all that out and then give the right amount but of course if you give under or over then it's going to really skew your levels but it is supposed to give you better control because you can see it and you can see where you're peaking so like it might be that i've only given four units of insulin for that chocolate bar where i should have given eight and then i can go oh actually i went high after that so i need to give myself more insulin to bring it down so it definitely should give you that Mine at the moment is scaring the life out of me because I'm seeing that I'm going up to 18 or 20 sometimes in a day. And before I wouldn't have necessarily seen that because I wouldn't have tested at those times. So it's freaking me out a bit more because on two injections a day, you don't have that flexibility. I can't now do more insulin to get it down. I have to go for a run. Or I don't even run. I have to go for a long walk or just not eat anything for hours. So it's not very flexible. So it's made me more... I was so scared of changing insulin. I'm more scared now of being on what I'm on because I'm seeing the effect it's having on me. And even though my long-term control is about averaging, so it averages out all of your blood sugars over a period. But my, my average has always been quite good. But what I'm doing is fluctuating between high and low, and that's not good. So, yeah. Do you feel, like you said, you were on these groups, these um, support groups online and things like that. <laughs> I can imagine for someone being diagnosed at any point in their life or, you know, at any time, it's quite scary because like you say, it's such a complex thing to be diagnosed with. And Mm. I I don't know if I'd even know where to start. What, what sort of advice do you give to these people that sort of join onto these groups and say, I've just been diagnosed. I don't, I don't know what to do. You know, I feel like this is, this is going to ruin my life or, or whatever. Yeah. You know, how do you, how do you sort of give them guidance and sort of say it's all going to be okay? Well, what's hard, I mean, there's like, we're talking like 10,000, 15,000 people on these groups. So there's always different opinions and different um, suggestions, I suppose. But one of the things is to just make sure that they contact their like diabetic specialist nurses, making sure that they, you know, contact Diabetes UK, which is another great place. Um, and sometimes they can ask specific questions that people might be able to help with. But what's hard is you, every, there isn't one size fits all. Everyone's on different regimes, different amounts of insulin. So you can't, and for somebody eating one chocolate bar, they might only give four units. Somebody else might have to give eight. And that depends on their makeup, on their build. And so you've got to be really careful that you're not giving advice to somebody that's like, oh, you should now give yourself three units of insulin because then they might do that and it might actually not be good for them. So you have to be really careful. And a lot of the time it's about going to, get you know health advice really from the professionals speaking to diabetes uk i mean you can give sort of generic advice and often people do um you know like people said oh my ketones are like three what should i do and everyone goes go straight to hospital because you know that's what the the guidance says if it's over a certain yeah. i don't think it's i can't remember what the level is but if you're over a certain level you have to go to hospital and that you know so people will just be like just don't worry about it just go straight to hospital so there is lots of things that you can do to support people um but you've got to be really careful because there isn't one size fits all and everyone's on different insulins and some some long acting insulin might last 18 hours some only last 24 hours some like last 72 hours so again everyone's on different different insulin so it does make life quite complicated sometimes right the mental impact of it all is i, I can't i can't quite comprehend because to monitor this 24 7 as you're saying you've got to wake up some days and just go, do you know what? I, I can't do this. It's a, yeah. You've got to be constantly vigilant and calculating and working things out that for one day, you just want your brain to stop and go, do you know what? I, I just can't. Does, does that sound familiar? Or Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> definitely. And I think 
I think it can, because also there's loads of other sort of health conditions that you can have alongside diabetes, mm. it's an autoimmune disease. And um, I, had, I ended up having health-related anxiety and was diagnosed with generalised anxiety disorder at the age of 27. And I think a massive impact of that was because of me getting diabetes at 15, because for a long time, I just coped with it. I sort of bumbled along, but actually it's such a big health condition that I can't ever let go of. I can't just wake up one day and go, right, I'm not going to give my injection today. If I did that, I would be in hospital, you know, and I could eat four chocolate bars if I wanted, but I would pay the price of that. So, you know, you, you do, you do just every day go, I just wish like right now I'm hungry, but I know my blood's a bit high and I can't eat anything for ages. So every day you just have to wake up and just hope that it's a better day than the day before or it's a different day that you could know because some days you just have to you just have to write them off you just like I can't get on top of it you know maybe you're stressed or maybe you're ill um and, it, and it's really hard and because it's a hidden diet di um hidden condition as well I think people don't always understand that you know because if you break your life a bit like mental health as well you know where they because they're hidden a lot of the time people then don't really understand it whereas if you break your leg people get loads of sympathy and people write on your cast and people can understand a broken leg and lots of people have probably broken something whereas I think unless you've got it it's really hard to understand how every day and sometimes people can be ashamed of saying I'm generally quite good you know if I go and stay at someone's house I'll say look I've got diabetes and I might need to have some biscuits or you know get something from your cupboard is that okay you know as long as you're upfront about it because there's nothing worse than being like oh, I can't I'm in a meeting and I like I need to get some food out and eat but there's important people in the meeting and they'll just like they'll be like well, why is she eating in the meeting you know I don't want to stand up and say I've got diabetes I'm going low I need to eat so it's a really hard one sometimes to sort of get right and and um I actually gave a talk to um, my work colleagues about it recently. And I just felt that brain fog as well that you get. So as soon as your blood's going low, your, your cognition goes. So sometimes I cannot make a decision and I can be sitting here working on a document and I, I, I'm just reading it, but not taking it in. And I test my blood. I'm like, yep, I'm going low. And I just have to deal with that. You know, you have some, you have to have some quick acting sugar, wait 10 minutes and have some more longer acting carbs and that can sometimes take a while because the sugar might not be going up quick enough. So you must do it again. And then, you know, that can be an hour gone. And it's like, oh God, and people are like, well, I'm waiting for that document from you, you know, but I can't do anything about it. So I think it is something that people do need to understand more about and to sort of, yeah, really realize it's not just like I inject myself twice a day and I have to worry about what I'm eating. It's all those other things around it as well. It's interesting because you're saying, you know, that with the generalized anxiety disorder, you know, being the onset and like you said with the brain fog that will increase your chances of having anxiety and attack or you know getting into that anxious space and so it's that self-perpetuating circle of yeah. you know they're chasing each other's tails and that's that's got to be yeah that's huge yeah yeah definitely I mean luckily I had four years of counseling for the um I had CBT for four years for generalized anxiety disorder and touch wood I haven't had anything like it since so I definitely feel I learned a lot of tools to really understand and know that I was having panic attacks because at the time I didn't know I was having about eight panic attacks a day so but of course on top of all of that you've then still got the diabetes that you've got to manage and then that's going to have an impact if you're anxious or if you're stressed or if you're going into an exam or if you've got a job interview all those things that it, impact on most people every day then it's doubly hard because it's like well your blood sugar is probably going to be high because you're anxious or you're worried about something so there is so much involved and I think it's it's just that you can't you can't let up really and I think one of the, and one of the things for me I suppose was like 
when I was diagnosed being told like, or feeling like I'm going to die young, I'm going to get complications, I'm not going to be able to live my life, I can't eat any sugar. And none of that is actually true. If you know, I mean, they could be true, of course, we're all going to die at some point. But I feel like, you know, as long as you, you are in control of your diabetes and don't let it control you, then hopefully you should be able to, you know, stop yourself. And nowadays, like, even if I, I, I go to have my eyes done on Friday and they say, you've got a bit of sign that your diabetes in your eyes, like nothing's going to happen then, you know, it doesn't, you don't suddenly go blind. It will take time and you've got chance to reverse it and you've got chance to, you know, so all of these things, because I have to have blood tests every four months I have to have you know my feet checked every year we check my pulses in my feet because if they can't feel my pulses then that's a sign of um what's it called nepathy neuropathy neuropathy um in your feet where you can't feel sensations so then if you trod on something you wouldn't know it had gone through your foot and that's a big factor in diabetes because your blood is circulating around your heart and then it goes around your body and obviously your feet are the furthest away so if your blood sugar control isn't good it means that that's what's going to end up going and you won't be able to feel your feet and you'll get numbness and pins and needles and things like that. So, but because we get regular checkups all the time, the good thing is that, you know, as long as you go to them and as long as you speak to people about any concerns, you can get a lot of this stuff checked and try and stop it from getting worse, which is obviously a, a good thing. You've mentioned obviously a, a lot about the um, physical impacts that do come with this and can come with this um, but also the mental impacts what would you say to someone who was maybe uh, in a relationship with someone that had diabetes or was a close friend or work colleague how can they support better I mean are there places they can go to read up on it are there things that they should be doing to support I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know where to start <laughs> yeah I think um years ago I so one of the things, there's a lot of courses out there as well through the NHS. You know, there are various courses. There's a course teaching me how to carb count, which I'm going to go on soon. Uh, there's courses about living with diabetes. And I went on one probably uh, 2000, 2001, something around that. So I've been diabetic obviously a long time, but I thought I'm going to go on this refresher course because things have changed, you know, and, and I want to make sure I'm understanding it. And, and um and that was really good. And that was obviously all through the NHS. It was an eight week course for like three hours a week. Um, and the great thing with that is I got to know a group of other people. And we're now still friends. We call ourselves the Naughty Diabetics because there's four of us now that go out regularly and we we do drink and we eat chocolate. And, <laughs> you know, we're all sitting there ejecting at the table. Um, <laughs> but we just, you know, we sort of we try not to, we try not to let it get us down all the time and we have a bit of fun as well and like sometimes it's like, I just want that chocolate cake if I'm going to be high I'm going to be high so we call ourselves the naughty diabetics and that's been great support and then on that course partners could come as well to some of the sessions to understand and learn it and at the time my partner came along I think that really helped um but also there's like diabetes UK is one of the best places for resources and it really does explain it in simple terms and you know support that you can get and I think it's to so my partner I'm having with her five years nearly and you know she's had to learn an awful lot she didn't understand anything about diabetes before and there's sometimes she gets it wrong you know but I don't expect her to always get it right but she knows when I'm going low sometimes she spots me going low first she says oh you're gone quite white you're a bit you know you're acting a bit weird I think you need to test your blood and I think just learning themselves about the signs and symptoms, you know, and, and it means that she can then like, if I'm not, if I'm not quite with it, she can go in the kitchen and make me the food that I need because she knows what I need to eat and those sorts of things. Mm. So I think the more that you can incorporate your partner into um, 
you know, your diabetes in your life, the better. And again, with friends, if there's friends that you hang out with regularly or if you're involved in groups. I mean, at work once I had to you know, let them know about what it meant. And I put a little in the first aid box, a little sort of slip about what to do if you found me on the floor unconscious or anything or, you know, how it's going to impact. So it's just making sure people are aware of it and that people then know what to do and know the support they can give you. Do you think there, I mean, you've, you have mentioned Diabetes UK um, a couple of times. Do you think there are any other places that people with diabetes should be going to get the support that they need? Um, obviously, like you say, the NHS is good, but it's underfunded and, you know, they might not be able to get the support they need there. So yeah. where would you suggest that people go other than Diabetes UK? So there is also local branches. So each or most big cities, probably some towns, have like their own like sort of diabetic, you know, a bit like the WI and those sorts of things. They'll have their own like diabetic um, groups. So it's worth joining them. And then I think nowadays that one of the biggest supports is definitely from Facebook groups or um, I mean that's where I've owned quite a few. There's a really good like type one diabetes Facebook group and there's a COVID and type one you know or diabetes group and things like that because actually they're the people that have it and sometimes you know while healthcare professionals are great and they really understand some of them and they can really support you unless you are diabetic yourself it's really hard sometimes and it can feel patronizing when a consultant's saying oh well just you know just try and get your levels a bit lower right you have diabetes for a week and see if you can stay within four to seven every single day you know because it's impossible to do and I just think sometimes at least other people can like they can go look I've had a bad day too and don't worry about that level because tomorrow you know as long as you're not staying at that high level and you know so I think you you understand it and you can empathize a lot more um so I think, it, yeah, joining these groups really and asking the questions and trying to find a few people that you know that are diabetic and sort of like, I've got a few little groups now that I meet up with and I can check things with them. So when I had my, um, when I got my Freestyle Libra in my arm to test my blood sugar, I was so scared of putting it on. I saw this giant needle, even though I do injections every day and I have blood tests all the time and I saw this giant needle sticking up and I was like, I can't put it on my arm. I can't do that. And she had to come around and help me. And actually it didn't, didn't feel a thing absolutely no pain whatsoever and I was building up to be this massive thing and it was fine um so again it's just having somebody else that's I've done that you know I can support you I know what you're going through I've been through that you mentioned about the um the contraption in your arm and I've, I've seen a couple of people with the with the circles on the backs of, of their arm and um it's interesting I know we talked about in the in the pre-chat about representation because that's almost like the visual yeah sign that someone has diabetes and I know we talked about representation I don't know if you wanted to add a little bit more about that yeah it's great because I'm noticing I've been noticing in the last few years much more on people and particularly when it's summer and people have got you know their arms out and they're not they're not afraid to show it and there was one of the dancers on Strictly Come Dancing that had one on so everyone was seeing it and some people might not have known what it was it looked a little bit like a nicotine you know nicotine patch so they might not but all the diabetic community were like wow that person's diabetic and look at them dancing like this and so again that visibility of not saying you can't do any you know you can pre- I mean you can't fly a plane there are some things you're not allowed to do with diabetes and I get that but there is a lot of things that you can still do and it's about making sure that you are still doing those things with diabetes and I think that's the most important it's something you want to do try and do it you know um and I think having that representation is great and there's also a cartoon that's just come out called turning red and two of the kids in that have them on their arms but there's no reference to it you know they don't say oh I'm diabetic it's it's literally like 
oh, I've just noticed they've got one on their arm. And so even if people don't know what they are, they might start to go, well, what are these things on people's arms? And again, educate people more. And now because they've become on the NHS, it's been years and years of battle to get them on the NHS. Now they're available to everyone. Hopefully you'll see more of them as well. But it's only type um, one diabetics that are getting them. So because there's not as many type ones, obviously if type twos had them, you'd see a lot more. Um, but yeah, I think that representation and that visibility is great, particularly for younger kids when they see you know, people like living their life and you know, dancing and things and knowing that they can still do all those things. I think, um, I think this chat has been, has been so insightful because mm. I, you know, very naive to it. And you think I, you know, had a teacher in school who was always carrying like a little snack bar and he'd say, you know, I'm going to eat in class doesn't mean you can. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my blood sugars are going low. And then I knew that. And I knew that you had to inject insulin, but it wasn't until later when I understood that there were two types and what that meant. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, you talk about representation, but like you spreading the word, doing this talk with us, uh, you know, today has been, has been so, so helpful. So yeah. I, can't, I can't thank you enough. It has been oh. great. Because the other thing, obviously when COVID came out, the first thing you read about was if you're, di if you're diabetic, you're three times more likely to die. So of course, every diabetic I knew was just like, because it's, a, it's an autoimmune disease and obviously it was, it was affecting the autoimmune system. So people were just like, you know, and there wasn't any data or research or evidence. So of course, we were all shielding. We were on the government list. We were on the, you know, clinically vulnerable. But as they, as they sort of learnt more about it, they realised that it's more um, type twos that were dying from it because a lot of the time they're overweight. You know, they, they haven't got the healthiest lifestyle. And also like the... You, I know loads of diabetics now that have had COVID and been absolutely fine. You know, sometimes their bloods might be a bit off or sometimes they're absolutely fine. But again, it's those scary factors at first. I didn't go out for days. You know, I was petrified. I used to wear a mask. I was like, I was, wouldn't have gone into a shop for months because I just thought, oh my God, if I get it, I'm going to die. And I didn't want to die of COVID. So, yeah, so there's a lot of things as well sometimes when those things happen that obviously someone with diabetes could end up being quite scared by. But again, it's about reading up about it, listening and understanding and knowing that actually you're probably not in any, any worse condition than anyone else. It's just about looking after yourself when you do have it. Amazing. Uh, Sorry, yeah. Katie. No, yeah, no, just, I was just, I was going to say the same thing. It yeah. is. It's just, and I suppose it was only going to lead me on to say um, where we do our, we need to find up a, a better name, not Springer's final thought, obviously, but it's like yeah, yeah. that. Um, but we do need a better name for that. So, the final sip. A final sip. Oh, I like it. Like the it. final sip's good. Final sip. <laughs> so, Suzanne, give us your final sip on diabetes. I would say it is something you've got forever and it can be very scary. And there are times when you just want to give up on it all. But then I also, every day I wake up and I'm grateful that I'm still alive. And so this year was 100 years of insulin. And I was ungrateful because if there was no insulin at 15, I'd have died. So even though it has been tough at times, I'm still alive. I'm still pretty much doing what I want to do. There are other things I want to do. And sometimes I just have to think about it more, you know, and I have to plan. But I try not to let it get me down and control me because and, I, and I'm just grateful all the time. And I'm grateful, you know, when I think of like the moment in um, Ukraine and I, and I I keep thinking about what well, about the diabetics? Like, how are they getting their insulin? Because after a while without insulin, you would just die. And I, you know, and that's and I'm lucky that we've got an NHS and I feel grateful that I can get insulin really easily. And and so I think being grateful and, and knowing that actually there are worse conditions out there as well, 
that also helps me get through and I try not to be like you know I don't know why I got it and none of my siblings got it none of my parents have it you know it's in my genes somewhere but we don't know how far back so I was just one of those unfortunate people and I could have sat and wallowed in it a lot and been really bitter and, and let it eat me up and I and I think through the diabetic camp that really helped me to live with it and to have fun as well you know and there were times that like I can push into a queue because I need to eat you know or I can take stuff into a festival you know I'm allowed to like I have to like speak to the pilot on the plane about taking my uh, insulin and my you know needles and stuff and so sometimes you, you've also got to find the fun in it as well and have a bit of a laugh with it otherwise it would just get you down and um, so I try and do that and I'm trying to be very grateful all the time as well I just, I just inspired just inspired <laughs> We would love to have you back as well, Suzanne, if if we can, because I think the le- I don't know about you, Katie, but I've learned a lot today, and just yeah, yeah the, the very nature of you just being able to explain things so that I can understand it <laughs> is invaluable. So, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, and I, I we know from speaking with you off the air that you've got a very very interesting life. So, absolutely, if you come back and join us for another another episode, that would be fantastic. I'd love to. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you to Vicky as well for my wonderful Thank you, Katie. Thank, thank you. you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> um, and we will catch up with you on the next episode of Strong Tea. Thanks ever so much, guys. Thank Bye. you.